Hello and welcome to Everyone Everywhere, the evangelism podcast brought to you by Church Army. This is part two of our podcast conversation about race. So if you haven't listened to part one yet with Andrina and V, we'd really recommend you start listening there. I'm Chris, and in today's episode, Hannah has got a double whammy of interviews for us. We're going to be hearing from Lusa Nsenga Nagoy first, who talks about the spoken word poem he wrote in response to George Floyd's death and his dreams for a multiracial church. If you want to see that video before you listen, then you can find the link right in our show notes. After that, we'll hear from Colette Dorgu about some of her experiences of racism and her perspective on the ways the church is moving forward in relation to racial justice. We're aware that this episode is longer than usual, which is particularly stark when this is part two of our episodes on race, but we really believe this is an important conversation to be having right now. So we wanted to do it justice, and that means giving it time and hearing from several different black people from the church army community. This isn't a conversation that is going away, and we want to give it the attention it deserves. There is a perfect gap in the middle where you can pause between the two interviews if you've only got a short gap to tune in. So first to Lusa. He's one of Church Army's board members and working with us to help Church Army become more inclusive and diverse in everything we do. He's got an awesome job description. He also works for the Diocese of Leicester, but I won't tell you any more as he'll introduce himself in just a few minutes. Today's episode, as you know, is about Black Lives Matter, focusing particularly on the experience of the church and Christians. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to speak to Lusa. Hi, Lusa. Good morning, Hannah. How are you doing? I am well. I'm well. Uh, still enjoying uh, or trying to make the most of a double lockdown for Leicester, uh, but trying to be as compliant as possible, uh, but holding on to hope. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad you're keeping to the rules. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> And um, it's great because um, Lucy and I have actually never met in person before, but here we are by the magic of technology, looking at each other and talking to each other. So um, Lucy, I just wanted to start by getting you to introduce yourself a little bit. So could you tell us about who you are and your role in the Diocese of Leicester for us? So uh, my name is Lusa, as, as you said, uh, uh, born in DRC, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, brought up in, in Belgium. Uh, and I've been in the UK for nearly 19 years now, uh, a long time, most of my life, I think. And I'm an ordained Anglican minister working in the Diocese of Leicester for the past three years, uh, leading uh, a strategically funded project aiming at developing greater competence and confidence in ministry with and uh, to uh, members of BAME. Community. So BIME is standing for Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic uh, Communities. Uh, and so I've, I've got the, the exciting role, uh, title rather, uh, of Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic Mission and Ministry Enabler. Oh my goodness, that's a mouthful. <laughs> Do you have a shorthand? <laughs> well, uh, often people refer to, uh, to me as the BAME Enabler, mm -hmm. uh, uh, or occasionally uh, the, the Enforcer. 
the enforcer wow <laughs> and uh, I th- if I'm right you work with V Pinto who is one of our evangelists in training I do yes yeah. so, so that was one of the exciting things about uh, about this role is that uh, the, our project is uh, working at developing uh, a number of what we call intercultural worshiping communities uh, and some are existing contexts that are uh, intentionally working at transitioning from a monoculture and, and homogeneous uh, expression of church to a much more integrated and diverse space, both uh, in terms of ethnic representation, but uh, also of cultural focus. Um, and V was recently appointed to join um, uh, an exciting bit of the project, which is planting uh, a church in the center of Leicester. Mm. Uh, watching with expectation and anticipation what God is going to do there. Yeah, definitely. I think your role sounds, you know, a really important one, especially for a church that is, uh, the Church of England is majority white, and to be able to have a role such as yours, I think is really crucial to ensure that we move forward and we just don't stand still where we have been with the church and the AME communities. First of all, I want to ask you, so as well as working with the Diocese of Leicester, you also have a role with Church Army. Would you just tell us about that? So for, so I think since 2018, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I was asked to join the, the board of Church Army. Uh, and, and since then, uh, I've had the opportunity of, uh, of attending a number of board meetings, but what I found really most exciting uh, is meeting with some of the, uh, the projects uh, and the, the mission teams working around the country. And, and I love the way in which the board makes sure that once a year we meet in a different part of the country, and so we engage with the local teams as well. And that, for, for me, has been both a humbling uh, experience to just see how uh, men and women who feel called by God to serve specific communities are doing that in a way that is so dedicated uh, both to people and to the gospel. Uh, and they do so with, with enthusiasm, with energy, uh, with passion, uh, but also with a great deal of skill and competence. And, and it's wonderful to see how Church Army is also often present in those places where uh, fewer other church-based initiatives are, are, are there and work, doing some, some sterling work. Wow, thank you. That's a really glowing reflection of Church Army. So, yeah. One of the things that you've been doing recently, so I think it's kind of out of a response to the death of George Floyd in America and kind of in general, the BLM, Black Lives Matter movement. You've written an incredible spoken word poem when I first heard it. And actually, I've listened to it again just before we had this interview. And It's given me goosebumps. It's really powerful words. So afterwards, I'm going to put the link to that spoken word in the show notes so everyone else can listen as well, because I think it's really worth a listen. Could you just tell me a little bit about how you came to write that poem? What was kind of going through your head and how it came to you? Yeah, I wrote it about a week or so after the the, the death of George Floyd. Um, And and the trigger really was a conversation with a, a friend of mine who lives uh, in St. Paul's, which is the twin city to Minneapolis. Uh, and, and she was telling me, me that they live about 10 minutes away from where uh, the incident happened. 
and her husband is a Methodist minister in, in St. Paul's in Minneapolis. And so she was telling me of her nine-year-old son, and I've referenced that in, in the poem, who comes to her really, I think both as a plea uh, or as a protest, uh, but also as a question and, and tells her that it's not his fault that he was born black. And at the time when, uh, when we were having that conversation, I was feeling really in a place of deep despair. It wasn't that George Floyd's death was anything that we had not witnessed before, but I think all that compiled with uh, so many other things happening. Uh, and I think uh, the reality that COVID-19, for instance, had a much more adverse impact to people of BME heritage in the UK, in the US, and in some other European countries. And clearly seeing that there were patterns emerging uh, in terms of the, the landscape in which we, we inhabit. And, and for me, as a, as a black man, finding myself in a place of, of deep despair. And I felt that, you know, I was asking myself, is there any point doing anything uh, in trying to address racism? Am I not better just to pack everything and, and go back <laughs> home to Congo and uh, lose myself in a little village uh, and just forget about everything else? But then hearing my friend talk about her son and his question, his lament, his protest. I thought actually, no, I, I, I can't choose the easy option. I need to hold on to hope. And, and as Desmond Tutu, I need to be shackled by hope and be a prisoner of, of hope. And it was, and, and the final version uh, is an expression of that, which to me is, is more, I think it is a protest, is lament, but it is also a prayer. In, mm. in many ways. And the video uh, that I hope uh, others will, will get a chance to see is then a response from our diocese using those words, but putting many other voices on top. And I find that really powerful because until I saw the video, I'd never heard those words spoken because they only existed in my head with my voice and with my intonation and with my accent. And then hearing them spoken by I think 20 or so people who each put their, their own twist, their own intonation on it, somehow gave it the life that I didn't think those words had. And, and every time I watch it, it, it challenges me. Absolutely. I can totally see it embodying all of those aspects that you've talked about. And I, I agree. I love the power of the multiple voices. It, it, for me, represents the church coming together under this issue. And I think that's something that really does need to happen at everyone coming together to fight against the injustice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just this morning, I, I was reading a post on Facebook by a friend of mine who was highlighting the fact that uh, he doesn't want to be, uh, he's a white, uh, white British guy. Uh, so he doesn't want to be held responsible for things that are a historic legacy. And while I understand that, uh, you know, I wasn't around in the 60s, I wasn't around 400 years ago, but in some ways, the structure and the systems that I live in mean that I'm either benefiting from it or I'm being oppressed by it. Mm. Uh, so one way or another, we're kind of entangled into that dreadful dance. And there's only one way we can escape from it is by being willing to stop and dismantle 
the basis uh, and the structures and the system that mean that some of us are alienated and, and oppressed and others are benefiting from it. And not having been there, I don't think is good enough an excuse, uh, especially if, if we are continuing to benefit from the, the legacy uh, of it, and often at the expense of, of others. And, and I often say that there is something about uh, a humanity that only makes full sense when it is lived in relationship with, with others. Uh, and I come from, from a culture where personhood uh, or human identity is not defined uh, in terms of, of exclusive narrative, but it's, it's defined in terms of relationship. Uh, and, and actually the fullness of my humanity is not in my capacity to accrue profit and benefit and, and be powerful and mighty, but it's in my capacity of allowing others to flourish and, and fulfill their potential. And there's something at the heart of our gospel as well that calls us to live lives that elevate the other, the, the other's humanity, uh, and that, that honors uh, the image of God in them. Uh, and trying to absolve myself from uh, past errors and past sins uh, might make me, might put me in a comfortable bubble, but ultimately it does not address uh, some of the fault lines that our society are living with. And I'm, I, I realize that it is huge uh, and it may feel daunting to kind of consider racism and feel that actually how can I as an individual uh, solve that? And how can I feel responsible for 400 years of exploitation? I don't think that's what we are called to, but what we may be called to is maybe look around us and see the human lives that we share this space and this landscape with. Uh, and, and the question I need to ask myself is, is how can I live my life in a way that uh, fulfill who I am without it demeaning uh, or diminishing someone else's aspirations and opportunities? That's good. Yeah, that's really good. And I think there's something powerful when we realize our interconnectedness with each other and past humans and also repenting as a group. Moving on a little bit, I was just wondering whether you could share a bit about your experience of being black in a predominantly white church. Because I think for, for me, I'm white. Obviously, you can see that on this Zoom video, but the people listening on the podcast might not necessarily know that. And so my experience of church is likely to have been very different from yours. So I'd, I'd love to hear just a bit about how you've navigated a predominantly white church as a black man. Mm. Well, your experience of, of church as being predominantly white uh, is, is true for, for, for most that. In fact, when I first came to, to Leicester uh, for my role, I carried out a small piece of research. And one thing that emerged was that most of our experiences of churches are often in homogeneous groups, either socially homogeneous group or ethnically homogeneous group. And I think, again, Martin Luther King, who, who's in reference as saying that they're the most segregated hour in Christian America was 11 o'clock, so worship hour. Uh, and that is true for Britain as well, where you find that typically people will worship in spaces that are homogeneous, either culturally or ethnically. Uh, and that, I think, is a real challenge for us in, in terms of, uh, of our calling as Christians. Uh, because if we believe that the ultimate vision of the church 
is that crowds gathered in worship before God, uh, that multitude that is united and yet diverse in language, in culture, and in ethnicity. Uh, so if that's the vision that we're working towards, why is it that we aren't finding the segregated experience of church problematic today? And I often say that um, I was not born black. I became black the day I landed in Belgium as an eight-year-old boy. So up until then, my experience of life was that uh, I existed as me, so people called me by my name, and I existed in terms of the relationships that I had and the social networks that I was part of. And arriving in Belgium, or uh, in Europe, uh, suddenly things shifted in the sense that I became essentially identified as a black person and later on as a black man and with all that it implies in terms of, of images uh, uh, and so that has shaped and defined my experience and what I found uh, well is that there are spaces where I as a black man and and I, I know that to be true for many other BAME people uh, I find some spaces, safe spaces, where I can fully be myself. And they tend to be spaces that are generally diverse, uh, ethnically and culturally, or spaces where uh, uh, my identity is not questioned mm. uh, or, or challenged. And sadly, the church is not that space. Uh, the church has often been a space where I was primarily seen as, uh, as a black man uh, and, and received as a black man. And, and still today, uh, I find that the first space for me to express something of my calling uh, and the stirring God that the Spirit is, is doing within me uh, is often impeded or limited or restricted by a church that primarily sees me through the lens of, of my ethnicity mm -hmm. and therefore only expects me to inhabit specific cultural expression of what this white normative space expects me as a black man to be as. And ultimately, I think uh, racism, because that's what it is about, is not a skin issue, but it is a sin issue. And, and as the church continues to tolerate racism and even nurture racism, then we perpetuate a culture of sin that limits uh, I think the fullness of the kingdom in our personal lives, but also in the communities that we inhabit. I love that image of everyone, all races, nationalities coming together. I find that such an exciting image. And I think it's true what you say, if the church only sees you as a black man, then we're limiting who you are and what you can give and everything else about you. And that is such a shame because then the church misses out on that. Kind of coming out of that, I was wondering if you had any kind of hopes and dreams of how you would love to see the Church of England, and I guess the wider church, what hopes and dreams would you have for the church in relation to fighting racism? I, I often, in my kind of low days, <laughs> in my depressed days, I, I often speak of the fact that for our children's generation, we are already starting to lose the battle because uh, I see it with, with, my, with my kids. I've got three kids, eight, nearly six, and nearly two. I can't speak for the two-year-olds. For the other two, there's a sense that they, 
they are already racialized. And, and it's quite interesting because their, their, their mom is white and I am black. And already they have integrated the reality that they live in a world where why biologically they kind of uh, share multiple heritage. Sociologically, they are black. And, and in some ways, I feel that we as parents have failed them because we, we, we have not been able to preserve them from a racialized mindset. Uh, and I guess my hope is that as they grow, they may grow in a society and more significantly in a church uh, that recognizes who they are in terms of their ethnic heritage, but recognize it as a gift, not a threat, that they will be growing in a church where they will be given opportunities to serve the church and to respond to the spirit stirring uh, in a way that is not restricted by their ethnicity. Uh, I want them to be able to grow in a church that will be in its iconography and by iconography, I don't simply mean uh, sculptures and, and stained glass windows, but actually the, the faces and, and the voices that we, we hear and engage with uh, on a daily basis. Uh, a church that in its iconography reflects the breadth of, of God's mosaic uh, of the diversity. I know that uh, some studies are suggesting that by, I think it's 2050 or so, one in three people in Britain will be from the global majority in terms of ethnic heritage. So I'm tempted in my dream moments to kind of hope that the church today can already be a, a version, a reflection of tomorrow's Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that we won't have to wait until we get to that, to have a church that is kind of proportionally representing every <laughs> little category, but that we will be a church that will be intentionally committed at creating a space where where every voice counts and every voice is invited to join into the, the amazing uh, mission of making the kingdom of God a reality where we are able and confident in our outreach to men and women uh, of all ethnicity and, and a church that is not just predicated on whiteness as a normative expression uh, of its identity, uh, both in terms of its worship, its theology and its makeup, but actually a church that is holy and truly intercultural and intergenerational. Yeah, so, so that's my hope for the church. Now, I'm I not sure- I'll mentor that. <laughs> I'm not sure whether we can get to that next year, uh, but, but it's certainly something that we work, we're intentionally working towards in, in Leicester Diocese. That's fantastic. And I, I really hope that Church Army are part of that movement as well, and that we aim towards that same vision and- I'm really encouraged by some of the movement I've seen recently within Church Army and your role with us, I think, is crucial to that as well. So, yeah, I think aiming towards that, going in that direction would be really, really positive. Thank you so much, Lusa. I have immensely enjoyed this conversation with you. I think you've been incredibly insightful. You've been incredibly generous with your thoughts and I really really do appreciate that thank you so much right thank you Hannah that was Lusa and Asenga Nagoi talking to Hannah and if you haven't already please hit the link in the show notes and check out Lusa's spoken word poem brought to life by many voices sharing the vision as Lusa said 
to see a church that is not white in its identity, but a church that is intentionally committed to creating a space where every voice counts and every voice is invited to the mission of making the kingdom of God a reality. If you want to split this episode into two listening slots, now is the time to hit pause and come back later. But please do come back because you are not going to want to miss this next interview. It's great to hear from Colette as she gives a positive insight into how the church she's part of is making positive steps towards racial equality. Colette is one of Church Army's evangelists in training. For those of you who don't know, Church Army train and equip those who feel called to mission and evangelism. Loosely, it's similar to how you train to be a vicar, but our trainees are those who God has given the gift of evangelism. Some people have worked in the church or in communities for years. Others feel this is where God is drawing them. Trainees are passionate about sharing their faith with others. That often means getting outside of the church building to talk about Jesus to people. And boy, is Colette a tremendous example of this. But that's enough from me. Over to Hannah and Colette. We've had our fair share of internet problems so far. So fingers crossed, we're done and dusted with that. And we can just have a nice little chat. Hi, Colette. Hi, Hannah. How are you doing? I'm okay, thanks. Good. It's really great to have you with us. So I was wondering, before we get started with some deep questions, whether you could just tell mm. us a little bit about who you are. I am Woyinkara Colette Dogu. I'm a person made in God's image, but I have different roles. I'm a qualified counselor. Mm. I'm a licensed lay minister at St. Mary's uh, Church in Leighton, uh, which is now part of um, Hackney Church. I'm a member of the PCC. I'm an EIT, evangelist in training with Church Army. And I help with with our homeless projects, two of the projects called the Christian Kitchen and the Lighthouse. <laughs> that is a lot of hats you wear. A lot yeah. of hats. <laughs> a lot of hats. <laughs> so Hackney Church, um, you're part of that network now. So I've actually been seeing quite a lot on Instagram and I tuned into one of their stream services. And something that I found really interesting is how much they're engaging with the conversation of race, really honestly. And yes, yes. To me, it really looks like it's something that's they've thought about before and there's a lot of depth mm. there and they're really committed to that. And so mm. I was just wondering what it's like being part of a team where that is happening. It's actually a huge, it's a, it's a huge privilege. It, it feels so good. And it's good because our rector, you know, is white. A mixture of race in the church, but you could see he was honestly interested. The underpinning principle he used was this same Imago Dei, saying we're all created, every human being is created in the image of God. So that's where the conversation started. Now, we must see each other that we're created in the image of God. And it's just I tell you, it is fascinating. It's been a wonderful conversation to just be able to honestly have a chat about these things. It's, it's great. I'm so pleased mm. with the way. And, um, and uh, moving on, my church, because my church is Latin Church connected to Hackney Church. 
we've not just uh, director and the clergy and the team, I'm, I'm part of the leadership too. So we've not just started to leave it there. It's not like post uh, headline season. Mm. But now the church has set up a working group. And uh, it's funny, you know, I'm part of the working group, the working group to fight for racial justice. And the focus is to bring change and establish in the church, uh, Hackney Church, and all its location, establish anti-racist practice. Mm. And, uh, That's really yeah. good. Very, very good. Is that commitment beyond just the surface level or how things mm. look? It's beyond that to everything that they do, which I think is really important. Yes. It's to be able, I mean, it's for the group to be able to identify, you know, areas and highlight areas of concern and be able to challenge it, give advice, encourage leadership where it is needed. It's just to keep the yeah. momentum going and effect change. Fantastic. Mm. Having spoken to um, several Black British people recently about racism, I keep hearing stories about both overt racism and also microaggressions and how those are an extremely common experience for people of colour. I was wondering whether you would be happy to share a few of your experiences with us. Yeah, actually, it's, it, it's a culture shock, really, when um, somebody like myself who've lived here over 30 years mm. now come here and experience these things. And it happens too, you know, professional meetings, you're having a meeting, you're talking, you have an idea, put your idea forward, and it's like nobody heard. But then another white person says the same thing, and it seems like everybody's had that person. So you get this attitude of being ignored. Mm. You just get ignored, and you're thinking, what's going on here? I mean, I've not experienced direct racism. Mm. But you just get these undertones, racist undertones. I mean, in my counseling, one-to-one counseling jobs, I remember I had a contract with a company and I had three people, the three of them were men actually, who thought I was probably, they probably, I don't know, probably thought I was French, I don't know, came into the session and I went, oh, you're a black person. I said, yes, I am. And um Oh, they, they, I'm not sure if I want to, you know. I said, fine. But then what I did, as a counsellor, we're trained to explore why somebody doesn't want to work with you. Mm. And at the same time, you're not forcing anybody. So we explored it and thought, look, I'm prepared to get you somebody else or stop the session, but it would be good if we explore why you would not like to work with me, are you willing? And funny enough, all three of them said in, at different occasions they were willing and they explored it. And we, we did the counseling process in the end. They appreciated the work and done with them. It was actually a very positive outcome because things had shifted for them, you know. So mm. it's just that I even had an a very elderly person some time ago, it was a home call, counseling home call. Opened the door, she went, oh, oh, uh, I thought you thought I was French and white. She said, actually, yes. So I said, okay, I'm here now. Would you like 
like me to work with you, explore with you. We can talk about why you don't feel comfortable working with me. Otherwise, I can leave right now at the door. She said, no, it's all right, come in. In the end, it was so sweet. She knitted me a pair of gloves as a gift to say thank you. Even the GP called to say, oh, this lady's been housebound for, for years. And well, how did you, what did you do? She's now leaving the house and joining, you know, different groups, doing activities. So sometimes it's good to call these things out mm. when you, we see them. We have, we have the opportunity to call them out and see the reaction. And yeah. I, I think it's incredibly brave of you mm. to be willing to do that because that puts you even in, in an even more vulnerable place. That True, but, true. Yeah, I think that's amazing that yes. you're willing to open those conversations. Yeah, probably because I'm a qualified counsellor trained. So, I mean, as a counsellor, you, you, you hear all sorts of things. Mm. Yeah, you hear yeah. all sorts of things, yeah. Yeah, you've got that training to help you work out mm, how to discuss yeah, those in a exactly. positive manner. Mm. Mm-hmm. My next question that I've got for you, I was a bit nervous about putting it in because <laughs> it's about your brother. And yeah. I know growing up, I always had teachers, family friends being like, oh, hi, Hannah. How's your brother? Is he doing this? How's his singing? And I'd be like, um, excuse me. I'm the one in front of you. What about me? <laughs> Don't ask about my brother. <laughs> but I am going to ask about your brother. I <laughs> know. Uh, I know when people say your brother, I'm thinking exactly like you just said, Annie, I'm thinking, oh, not my brother again. <laughs> it's, even, it's even worse, Annie, when you're a twin. He is my twin brother. So we're born on the same day, but I came first. Definitely winning at something then. Exactly. <laughs> I'm very competitive <laughs> with my siblings, you see. So <laughs> he's the competitive one. Me, I'm just uh, I just I think I go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> so your brother is Caraway mm. Dogu and he mm. is the Bishop of Woolwich. Yes, 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 he is. I briefly met him a couple of years ago. So he led one of our commissioning services. So like you're doing now, you're training as an evangelist. And so some people had finished their training and we commissioned them and your brother led that service. So that's how I vaguely know him. The interesting thing about your brother is that when he became Bishop of Woolwich, he was actually the first black bishop appointed by the Church of England for 20 years. When I read that fact, I thought it's bittersweet. It's got a mixture of that's so exciting, but also yes. 20 years. And yes. it feels a bit like a success in one sense, but frustrating in another sense. How did you and your brother feel about that when that happened? Was that something you thought about? It was actually very exciting. We, we knew, like again, talking about twins, growing up, we always knew my brother was going into ministry and serving God. He always made it clear that he was called to serve God. I got my, I accepted my calling at a very later, mm-hmm. you know, stage in my life. Unlike him, we knew. So when he was appointed a bishop, we thought, wow, this is amazing. And um, yes, it was, it was exciting. And to God be all the glory. We, we, we were excited. My mother, the whole family were excited and just thought, oh, my dad was still here. Because mm. our, our dad was an Anglican minister himself oh, many, many years ago. So that legacy 
we just felt the legacy and the prayers were still on. So it was a bit, like you said, bittersweet. It was, it was more sweet than bitter, though. Mm. You know, it was sweet in the sense that, like you, you were saying, first black bishop in 20 years, which made, in a way, if you do a little bit of mathematics, like 100% increase. Yeah. They had one before, so another one is double. Bishop Sentamo was there mm-hmm. then. And it also meant that the church was beginning to take these issues seriously. So that was the sweet part of it. Mm-hmm. Because even everybody said it, people were thinking, oh, yes, that's a decision in the right direction. And then the bitter part was it, of it was, like you said, in 20 years, 20 good long years, you know, after Bishop Sentamo. And for, I mean, when you look at that, you can see that that shows what we're talking about, mm. unconscious bias. Exactly. And yeah. institutional racism. Yeah. And yeah, that is what that 20 long years shows. Yeah. It just shows that we still have a long way to go to... Yes, we do. Yeah, tackle. But we, yes, but we must, we must not forget that the church is doing everything they can. Mm-hmm. That's the positive aspect of it. The church is trying. They're, they're doing little steps, but they're not, you see, they've not closed the book. Mm-hmm. They're making progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I pray for. More progress, more, yeah. more discussions, more talk, and more seeing each other as people, persons, exactly. created in God's image. Yeah, and I, I love that. If we saw everybody like that more, how different we would treat people yes. generally. Yes, yes, amazing. So we would agree that fighting white supremacy and racism mm. as a church body mm. is mm. really crucial. But I was just yes. wondering, you're an evangelist. Mm. Do you yeah. think the church would have a better track record in helping people find faith if they were to tackle racism more? Yes, I think so. I think so a great deal, especially as a black person, because it's, to put it in summary, people question the church and see the church as hypocrites Mm. that we're not practicing what we are supposed to be preaching which is jesus yeah you know and any improvement on that would make the church less hypocritical and the less hypocritical we are the more like jesus would be and society too will see and it will make people return especially the black community Mm. a lot of the black people left and lots of, I mean, I don't like too much to bring my brother in, but my brother <laughs> too, many times when we are in the um, company of other black Christians, says to them, many of you are Anglicans. God is calling you back. And I too am beginning to toe that line. I, I remind them, I say, listen, guys, you guys are Anglicans. I know you, you left because of all these hypocritical issues that we've, we've been seeing all these years. But God is calling you back. We're praying that God will bring them back. Mm-hmm. You know, and look at the multi-ethnic churches. They're, they're thriving. They're growing. Yeah. I believe it's the same thing for white people too. Because I think some of the white people look at it and say, the church, our church, is not a reflection of what they believe. Mm-hmm. For example, if you look at 
this generation of young people these days, they see each other more than some generations back. They see the person. Look at Black Lives Matter protests. It wasn't just Black people only. It was all races mm-hmm. out. You can see this generation, this younger generation. I use the word younger because, um, you know, I won't talk about my age, but <laughs> generation, they see people, they see the person. If, so, if we valued people for who they are and if we loved like God loved, then exactly. we'd be living the lives we're meant to live and people would want to join that. People want to join that, yes. I like that thing of thinking about also, it's not just black people that that would no. back in, that actually white people clearly care about justice. And we know that God is a God of justice. And if mm. as a church, mm. we're not embodying that, then that mm. is hypocritical. And it is. we'll wonder how they can mm. be part of something. And, and obviously we're always going to fall short. There's always going to be things that we don't yes. see. But if we're pursuing that, then people will see our authenticity. Yes, that's mm. what I believe. Yeah. Mm. We'll just keep praying, yes. So as an evangelist, that's how we see it. We, mm. I mean, the, the, the kingdom of God, the church is for all races. Yeah. The yeah. more we are interracial, the more it is a reflection of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Colette, for joining me and just being able to share a bit of who you are and your thoughts on some of this stuff has been so insightful and we are so grateful for you and all that you're doing. Good luck with your next stage of training. And I'm hoping that when we get back into the offices, you'll be in for your residential training and I'll be able to say hi face to face. Face to face. That would be great. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Now, this concludes our two-part podcast on Black Lives Matter and racism and the church, but it's just a small part of a much bigger ongoing conversation. It's brought up a mixture of hope and challenges, highlighted opportunities for us to work towards a church where every group is valued and loved the way that God loves everyone. From Hannah and myself, we want to thank our guests, Andrina, V, Colette, and Lusa, for coming on to talk to us and being so open and honest about their experiences. I hope it has given everyone more insight into such a vital conversation. And as always, we want to hear from you. If you have comments, thoughts, or experiences that you want to share, you can do so by emailing us at hello at churcharmy.org. Or you can find us on social media. or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Please follow us and share this podcast with your friends so more people can discover everyone everywhere as well. And join us next time where we'll have more interviews for you to sink your teeth into. So for now, stay safe and goodbye.